Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. So this morning we're in the story of Thomas in John 20. And the story of Thomas revolves around one central theme, and and that's doubt. And look, doubt is something, whether we want to admit it or not, that that we all probably struggle with. Varna, which is an independent statistical group, uh, did a poll two years ago. And they said that 40% of Christians experience doubt and work through it. 26% have doubts right now, and 35% say they haven't experienced doubt. But to be honest with you, I I doubt that. I'm, I'm more inclined to believe what Socrates said when he said, the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. Actually, two cultural philosophers, Bill and Ted, made it famous in their movie a couple decades ago. I think doubt kind of comes with the territory of of knowing. In fact, if you really want to look back in church history, most of the prominent church fathers, scholars, writers, theologians, even activists have expressed doubt. Mother Teresa, known for her faith that really changed the world, her compassion for people born out of a love for God, she had serious doubt. After she died, we found a bunch of letters that she wrote while she was alive. And I'll just quote you a couple lines. She says, Such deep longing for God and repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. The saving of souls holds no attraction. Heaven means nothing. Pray for me, please, that I keep smiling at him, God, in spite of everything. Mother Teresa battled with doubt. Os Guinness wrote a book on doubt, and he said, anyone who believes in anything will automatically know something about doubt. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher about 100 years ago, said, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. Today's talk, today's conversation, today's discussion is about doubt. And and I think it's important because if we're honest with each other, if we're honest with ourselves, I think at some point or another, we've probably all had doubt in relationship to our beliefs in God. So what I want to do is talk about what it means. I want to talk about Thomas. I want to see who he is for a man. I want to talk about what his doubt did for him. And I want to have a candid conversation about the role of doubt in the spiritual journey. Because for far too long, I think maybe we haven't talked about it. And so what I want to do as we work through the text is, is really talk about three lies that we believe about doubt, expose three lies, and see how those lead us into three truths about doubt as we see Jesus confront Thomas this morning. But before we do that, every week at CBC, we believe you're listening to this for a purpose, and we believe that as we open the scriptures and talk about it, God's going to do something through his spirit in your spirit this morning. I know it. And so we just want to take a couple minutes and and get our hearts right. We want to pray. And so we move from critics to contributors in the conversation of faith because we believe that God is going to teach us something this morning. So take a couple seconds wherever you're at and pray with the people around you or pray by yourself that God might teach you something this morning through his word and form your spirit to love Jesus more.
Okay, so let's set the stage a bit this morning. We find Thomas, and, and right when you get into verse 24, we see something different about Thomas than the other disciples. In verse 24, it says, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So what we know is this is the day of the resurrection in the narrative when they're talking about it. And, and we know that when Jesus appeared to some of the disciples, Thomas wasn't with them. Thomas wasn't there to see Jesus the first time he appeared. And so sometimes I think Thomas just gets a bad rap. Thomas gets a bad rap because none of the other disciples believed either that Jesus initially rose from the dead until they saw him in person. And so it says in verse 24 that they told Thomas that Jesus rose from the dead, but he didn't believe him because he wasn't with them when Jesus appeared. He goes on to say, Thomas said, when they said Jesus rose in verse 25, he says, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. And this is when I think he kind of gets the short end of the stick, because you know what? I don't necessarily think I'd be any different. If you came along and told me that somebody that was dead is now living, something that to my knowledge has only happened once or twice in the scriptures and really only one way when it was Jesus, I'm probably saying, I don't know if I believe you until I see it. And they say, it's true. And he says, I'm going to have to see it. I'm going to have to touch it and feel it. I'm going to have to need more evidence than just you telling me it's true. Thomas doubted because he didn't see like all the other disciples at one point. And I think he kind of gets, if you know his character a little bit, Thomas, Thomas is a realistic guy. He, he is one of the disciples that is more, you might say pessimistic, but I kind of fall in that camp too. So I'm going to use the word realistic in terms of how he follows Jesus. And we see it on the couple other times that he is quoted in the book of John. Um, it says in, in chapter 11, this is right after Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead. And, and there was places at that point where Jesus shouldn't go because tensions were really high. And he knew there were people trying to kill him. And so after he raises um, Lazarus from the dead, or when he's actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead, in verse 14 of chapter 11, Jesus told his disciples plainly, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. So Thomas said to his fellow disciples, <laughs> Let us go too so that we may die with him. So Thomas loved Jesus and he's following Jesus, but he knew they were walking into a high tension filled situation that probably wasn't going to end well. And to his credit, he didn't say, I'm not going. It's a death trap. He said, let's all go die together. March on, you know. In, in, in verse um, 5 of chapter 14, we just did a series on the way in April. And, and John uh, is, is talking about how Jesus says, I'm going to go away from you for a little while. And Jesus says, you know the way. And Thomas stops down right there and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He's a realistic follower of Jesus. And so when Jesus died, he's still realistic in how he processes through the doubt that he's experiencing. But we give him a bad rap. I don't know how this story was told to you growing up, but it wasn't told to me in a way that was proud of Thomas. <laughs> It was told to me in a way that said, hey, maybe you don't want to be like Thomas. And, and let's be honest, if we're doing a disciple draft, he's not going in the first round. He's probably not going in the second round. Thomas is probably one pick above Judas, and that's not a good place to be. And, and even when you look at their nicknames, he gets the worst nickname from his worst moment. 
Peter had a lot of bad moments, but he is still called the rock. And John had probably some up and down moments. And he's the one whom Jesus loved. Thomas doubts. And forever he's branded as doubting Thomas. Thomas got the short end of the stick. And to this day, when we read through the story and when we teach this story, I think he's used as something not to do. And I don't know if that's true. And so we come to our first lie about doubt. And the first lie is this, that doubt is the absence of faith. I think we believe that doubt is the absence of faith. So when we talk about Thomas, what we say is you, don't wanna, you, don't, you need to have faith. And if you don't have faith all the time, or if that faith isn't 100% all the time, then it's zero. It's a binary proposition, and I just don't know if that's true. And, and to understand what we mean when we say doubting, we've got to differentiate between doubting and questioning. Two different things. Questioning asks questions uh, about, about things that God has an answer for right? Questioning says, hey, I wonder if God made the world in seven literal days or 7,000 years or fill in the blank on all the creation theories, knowing full well that God has the answer because he created. Doubting questions the ability and the capacity of God to answer the question in the first place. Like God might not have the answer. Doubting is saying, I don't know who created. I'm confused about that. There's a difference between questioning and doubting. There's a difference in saying my husband, wife, child uh, might make something for dinner, but I don't know what it is, and saying I don't know if they can cook. Big difference between questioning and doubting. Thomas is actually doubting. Oz Guinness goes on to say in his book about doubt, at its most basic, doubt is a matter of truth, trust, and trustworthiness. So it's deep and it's rooted, and here's the problem. When... We have moments of, seasons of, months of, years of doubt because it's personal. So often we feel like we've lost faith or that it threatens our faith. When we doubt, it's personal and it feels like we've either failed our faith or worse yet, we've failed our God. That's tough. And so we cast Thomas in this light that says, hey, don't be like Thomas, don't have doubt. And when we make doubt and faith binary and juxtapose, either have it or you don't, when we make it one of those two things, it just creates a culture of silence. So then you're afraid to say you do have doubts because you don't want people to think you don't have faith. And, and sometimes I think that's where we're in when we talk about how we deal with faith as a culture because we teach that if you have doubts, then your faith is threatened in some capacity. Like it's all the way on or all the way off. In that Barna study, he goes on to say that 45% when, faithing, when facing doubts left. They ran away. They didn't talk about it. They didn't think about it anymore in terms of in a spiritual community. And they didn't go to church anymore. They didn't know how to deal with it. They didn't want to speak up about it. And so they just walked away in silence when they doubted. And here's the deal. I don't think doubts are deadly. I think silence is deadly when we talk about doubts. And there's a big difference there. Anne Lamont is an author, and she has a really great story on doubting. She went through a period of significant doubt. She was talking to an Episcopalian priest, and, and he said this. I love this quote. He said, the opposite of faith isn't doubt, it's certainty. And when he says certainty there, he means like certainty like I'm never going to have doubts, right? Because I have faith. Certainty, he goes on to say, is missing the point entirely. Faith includes noticing the mess, the emptiness, the discomfort, and letting it be there until some light returns. So, so doubt is not the absence or the lack of faith. Doubt is a starting point. Here's the first truth we see from the lie. Doubt is a starting point for a deepening faith. And we're going to see that be true in Thomas. 
So it goes from something, if you see it like that, it goes from something that we're silent about maybe to something we almost even celebrate more if we work through it in a healthy way. And so if we live in a world where you can have doubt and faith at the same time, which is the picture the Bible paints, then we treat Thomas differently in this story. There's a story in Mark chapter 9, and there's a father whose son from birth has been on and off possessed by evil spirits. He goes as far as to say that the evil spirits make him throw himself into fire and water, trying to kill himself again and again and again. And so Jesus shows up and he says, do you believe I can heal? Uh, do you believe I can heal your child? And this man says in verse 26, I believe, help my unbelief. It actually says immediately after he healed him, the father said, um, immediately the father of the boy cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And right there you see the tension. I do believe, but help my unbelief at the same time. In the Bible, faith means trust, not blind belief. And that trust grows on a spectrum. And sometimes it's growing forward. And sometimes in tougher patches, it's going backward. I, I see it now driving, right? So we're in the middle of this weird place where we come to CBC and, and shoot these sermons. And for the first couple weeks, nobody was on the road. I mean, it was, it was amazing. I drive down 635 to get here. And that's the worst highway on the planet. And it's always, always, always congested because there's always wrecks. Literally, there's a stretch of 635 that's the most dangerous highway in the state of Texas, right? And I drive through it. And there was nobody. And it was blissful and it was great. Over the last week or two, it's picked up and it's picked up and it's picked up. And so as we societally have more faith in our stance and, and where we're at against this pandemic, you see that we are growing in our understanding, growing in our faith about, um, about how we can tackle this, this pandemic. And so what we see is literally that faith grows. It's not all on or all off. It, it, it grows in how we deal with it in relationship to doubt. And that's exactly what's happening, I think, with Thomas and with the man whose son had the evil spirits. Faith is a journey, and, and on the journey, sometimes we carry doubt with us. It's a tool that God uses. I love what Leslie Newbigin says. He said, faith is the courage to confidently affirm beliefs which can be doubted. So you have Thomas, and he says, I'm not going to believe until I literally touch the wounds of Jesus. Sorry, guys, I just can't bring myself there. Significant doubts. And line number one is that where there is doubt, there is not faith. But the truth of that is that's not necessarily how it works in the scriptures, but God uses doubt to deepen our faith. And then we see line number two in the next few verses. And line number two builds off line number one. If, if I have doubts, that means I don't have faith and I've disappointed myself or my community or my God, then I think line number two is that God distances himself from us in our doubts. He, he is disappointed and wants nothing to do with the people who doubt because they don't have faith. But look what the text does. It continues and it says that Jesus shows up. But you have to understand how Jesus showed up. It said that there were literally locked doors. Eight days later, the disciples were alone together in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So there were some locked doors in small spaces. They were still afraid of the Jewish um, higher-ups that didn't like them very much and definitely didn't like Jesus. And so what happens is they're hiding, but they want Jesus to show up, and Jesus does in the spaces that they're scared for. We've talked about it every week through the series, talking about the presence of Jesus. 
that it shows up and meets us in the places and spaces that we need him to meet us the most. But so often we think that if we doubt, God moves himself away from us, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. There's a really great book called The Great Emergence, written by a woman named Phyllis Tickle. She's an author and a writer and a teacher. Um, And she kind of deconstructs this idea of why we think God moves away from us in those times. And she said for the last literally three or four hundred years, there has been a construct to Christianity, especially Christian communities. And it's uh, believe, behave, and belong. And what that looks like is first you believe in all the claims of the church people, and then you start looking like them, acting like them, wearing your pleated khaki pants, all the thing in the middle. And then finally you belong to their tribe or their community, but it goes in that order. That was my Bible college experience, right? You sign on the dotted line that say, I agree with your doctrinal statement. You tell them that you haven't done bad things in the last six or nine months, and then they let you move in on campus, right? Go Moody Bible Institute. And so first you believe, and then that changes how you behave, and then as you believe right, behave right, then you belong rightly in the community. And she said the Christian formation has got that wrong. She said the way we've thought about belonging in the, as followers of Jesus it needs to be flipped, and so she argues for this different construct. She said that really what we see in the Scripture is it's belonging, behaving, and then believing. What we see is Jesus coming up to people that normally didn't think they had a place in the religious society of the day and saying, I came for you. You have a place with me. Whether it's Zacchaeus, whether it's Matthew, whether it's the woman at the well, pick your poison. It says Jesus comes up to people and says, you are the reason why I'm here. And then as they begin to belong, we see it changes how they act and they begin to see the beauty of Jesus. And they begin to believe in the hopes that he's given them and the truths that he's promised them. And so she flips it and she says, no, you, you, you belong, then you behave, then you believe. And, and realistically, that's what the church is for. It, it's not for perfect people. It is for broken people that need to be told that God is working in and amongst us to bring about something better. It's that whole idea that people sometimes say, well, I'll go to church, I'll get right with God when I'm right with God. But that's the opposite of how we need to find it. It's why the psalmist says that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble because those moments when we're weak and when we're broken and when we're doubting, that's when we need to run into God, not run from him. But we believe that doubt causes distance, and it doesn't. Because look where Jesus finds Thomas eight days later in locked rooms in small, pa- small places. Jesus shows up. And so the lie is that doubt causes distance from God. The truth is that God absolutely draws near to us in our doubts. <laughs> he draws near. And he says, this is when I'm here for you. There's a, a book called Doubting Towards Faith by Bobby Conway. And, and he writes um, that doubt is directional, right? So the way you doubt leans one way or the other. It leans towards God or away from God. And he encourages people struggling with doubt to doubt towards God. And so what does that look like? I think you doubt towards God when you don't run away from Christian community when you find out, but you, when you find your doubts, but you press into it. I think it looks like conversations that we've created because our culture isn't one of silence anymore, but one that celebrates what God's doing in the middle of doubts. I think we lean in by, by actually learning and by growing and by reading. I had a friend a couple years ago I sat down with and she said, Charlie, I'm just struggling with my faith in God. And I said, great, what are you going to do about it? You know, and she said, well, I mean, game's over. I'm, I'm doubting. And I was like, that's, that's, that is the beginning of the journey and it's going to be good. I said, don't stop at doubt. 
pursue it. Read more, study more, read the Bible more and other books more that help us understand our doubt, and let's talk about it together. That's why in Mark 12, it says you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. It says that our faith in God takes all of us, not just your emotions, but your intellect and your capabilities and others. That's what it looks like to love God well. So we lean in instead of leaning out. I think, I think this is where we see the value of community. It's why at CBC we believe that growing people change because we need others to walk alongside us when we're doubting and we need to walk alongside others when they are. It's when you need others the most. And maybe you'll find some people that have gone through the same doubts you have and have gone, and have, and have, um, gone through um, themselves. And so one lie we believe is that doubt causes distance, but instead what we see is that God draws near to us in our doubts because he showed up in the middle of that room for Thomas. <laughs> he showed up and he looked at Thomas, none of the other ones, he looked at Thomas and he said, Thomas, he said, put your finger here, examine my hands, extend your hand and put it into my side. Think about that. You said this phrase eight days ago, I won't believe Jesus until I can actually touch his wounds. Jesus wasn't there at that moment, but he knows what we say because he knows all things, and he shows up eight days later, and he doesn't say, hey guys, how are we doing? I'm so glad to be back in this room with you. We're on track for my plan to keep on going. He shows up in that room, and he says, you, Thomas, you have some doubts. Touch my side. And here's line number three. I think we believe that it causes division, and we believe that, that doubt is a lack of or the absence of faith, and it's 100% binary, and it's not. The third lie is, is we think deep down that maybe God can't handle our doubts. That because we've disappointed him, he wants nothing to do with us because he can't deal with our doubts, because we can't deal with our doubts. And it's in those moments we have to remember who God is versus who we are. And you see it in that passage, right? When he says, Thomas, you can actually touch my wounds, he wasn't there for that, so Thomas had to think, you, you weren't there when I said that. That's definitely one of those Alexa moments when you mention something out loud and you see 17 ads for it the next day, and you're like, somebody's listening in my house. I didn't even type it in to her Google search bar. You know, it's one of those moments when you realize something bigger is happening than your moment right there. Jesus shows up, and it actually points to his deity. It points to his majesty. It points to his bigness amid, uh, um, in the middle of his doubts. And that's what we need to remember in the middle of doubts, that our God is bigger than our doubts, that, that, that God can handle our doubts. Jesus says, put your hands in my side. I, I can handle your doubts. And I don't know how you were taught this passage growing up, like I said, but I, I wasn't taught this in a way that really, really was complimentary at all towards Thomas. And then when we got to this passage, it was almost taught in a way where Jesus shows up out of obligation, be like, really, you need to do this? Okay, fine, let's get it over with. Let, let, go ahead, this is, I have better things to do, but you needed this because you are weak and because you're doubting and because I need to be here so you can keep following me, so go ahead and put your hand in my side. But I, I would simply ask, when we see Jesus talk to people like that who are wrestling with faith, when we see, in the three years he walked in, in the earth, when we see Jesus talk to people like that who are sincere and who love him, we, we don't. I think as we read that, it's not one of obligation. It's one of, of willingness and wanting to. I think Jesus shows up kindly and compassionately and full of grace and says, Thomas, I'm here for you. Touch my side. 
Like, I'm going to give you this opportunity because I love you and I care for you. I think it's a call of compassion and he's extending grace. It's not something that he feels obligated to do. The way we read that text paints the picture of the Jesus we follow and the Jesus I follow is full of grace and truth, compassion, loving kindness, and sacrificial love for me and for you. And so when we read that, he's telling Thomas literally, literally, that he's big enough and can handle his doubts. And so the lie we believe is that God can't handle it, and the truth we see is that God is God enough for any of our doubts. And that is incredibly freeing. It seems really simple, that last point, but think about that. If we believe that God is God enough for any of our doubts, then we believe that he can handle all of our doubts. Then we don't have to be silent, and we don't have to be ashamed, and we can come to God and the community of faith with our doubts, no matter how big or how small. And it's freeing. I'm going to tell you a story when I was dating my wife, and it's not my finest moment, but my wife's going to love it because she gets to play the Jesus figure in this little analogy. Um, we'd been dating for a few years, and I, one of my biggest fears, I'm, I'm loud and a little, I'm a lot of a personality, and so um, I just really always wanted somebody strong to, to stand up to my strengths. And so we were dating, and I remember where we were, we were on a date downtown, and I'd been thinking about it for months and months and months, and I finally sat down and I said, hey, we need to talk. And I said, I have five reasons why we're not going to work out. And I listed them. One, two, three, four, five. And I might have even said, respond. Like, first of all, it's amazing that this woman is married to me. Right? You need to have compassion on her. Um, but two, and this is, I, mean, I think the moment when I realized that I really liked her, uh, was that she sat there, and, and there were some tears, but she sat there and she responded to him. And, and I realized that she could handle me, you know? I realized that I could be honest with her and it wouldn't scare her away or it wouldn't do some of the things that had happened in my other relationships. I realized that, that this relationship could handle my fears and my doubts and all the things that went along with being in a relationship. And what that allowed me to do is be honest with my wife from that point forward in those ways. So when we see that God is big enough or he's God enough for any one of our doubts, what we believe then is that we can be honest with God in our doubts. That's what Thomas does. Look what he does. Look, look, what, look what that does to Thomas. It says, do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Literally, Jesus is giving him a command there. He's saying, believe now. And Thomas replies to Jesus, my Lord and my God. It's a statement of deity. It means kind of the same thing. Um, it's redundant, but my Lord and my God for emphasis. You are exactly who I want you and need you to be. So what we see is Jesus meet Thomas in the middle of his doubts and move him from a place of fragility to strength. What we see is the presence of God in our doubts leads us to deeper faiths. This is what Tim Keller says about it. I love this quote. He says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. What we see in the story of Thomas, what we often haven't celebrated in the story of Thomas, is the role of doubt in the journey of faith. You carry doubt with you, but if 
handled well, if leaned into correctly, we see doubts as catalysts for deeper growths, not threatening faith at all. Because ultimately it comes down to our ability to trust Jesus, the one who shows up in our doubt, the one who literally says, I'm going to draw near when you're not feeling near, the one who's big enough for all the doubts we might have. It comes down to our trust in Jesus, that our trust in Jesus is greater than any doubt we might have because we see and believe the world he promised. Leslie Newman goes on to say in his book, Proper Confidence, our confidence comes not in the competence of our own knowing, but in the faithfulness and reliability of the one who is known. Look, I think we're all going to have doubts. I, I think you're not going to get to a point probably where you have no more doubts. And if you do, you're probably not asking questions. But I think the Christian response to doubt shouldn't be to walk away or to be silent or to be afraid. The Christian response to doubt is to ask what God's doing in the middle of it. And to know that doubt doesn't mean there's not faith and doubt doesn't distance us from God, and, and, and doubt doesn't threaten the bigness of the God that we follow. It's the opposite of those things. Doubt deepens our faith, and in those doubting moments, God draws near, and God is big enough to handle any one of our doubts. It's how we look at doubt as followers of Jesus. So, if anything, when we talk about this message, I want to celebrate Thomas a little more. I want to pick him first, second, or third in the disciple draft, because I think he assures me that in my doubt, I find Jesus and I grow where I can say, my Lord and my God. Give me a beautiful moment. So I want to create a culture. I want to create a culture that talks about doubts, that does it well, that leans into God and uses the experience of others because it pushes us farther and farther into seeing how great and majestic Jesus really is. We'll end with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He said, I thank God for every storm that wrecked me upon the rock of Jesus Christ. That's what doubts do. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for who you are, that you meet us in the middle of our doubts, that we can reject the lies that doubting distances us from you or means that we don't believe in you or, or sometimes even makes us think that you're not big enough to handle our doubts, but we know that's not true. So I'm thankful that you're big enough for our doubts. I'm thankful for the story of Thomas. It encourages me because I have doubts too. So I pray right now for all of us that have any doubts that you provide people to step into those doubts and point us back to the beauty of Jesus, the one who is known in the middle of the unknown. We might use these moments as places of growth as we follow Jesus in our everyday. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. To end today, we'd like to end with a blessing. There's a book called Every Moment Holy. I've been going back through it. It's a, it's a book of blessings. I'm Irish. I love me some blessings. And um, there's one blessing on doubt, and I'm just going to read from some of it over us as we end. It says, Let my doubts become invitations to wrestle with you through such dark nights of the soul until the day breaks anew and I'm fresh wounded by your love and resting in the blessing of peace again in your presence. So help me, my Lord and my God. I have no consolation but you. Meet me now in this eclipse shadow of my doubt. Lead me again into your light. Amen. Amen.